<laughs> we have a today's a special day. We have a new cat in the room. It's the other black and white cat, my cat, Quesadilla. And Victoria, our web designer and assistant writer occasionally, is also social the, media. Yeah, she's person. in the other room right now. <laughs> and so she's on duty to make sure that the other cat that normally screams doesn't scream. Uh, and my cat doesn't usually scream, so I think we're probably good. But she looks like she's in a good mood. She's ready to fucking co-host. She's rubbing up on everything, and she's licking Cassie. Cassie's not happy. Should I? Is it's fine? Are you gonna have a, a reaction? No. Cassie's I don't think allergic so. to cats, and we literally put a cat in this room. <laughs> it's Pride Month. I'm covered in glitter. Jake would not partake. Uh, no. I had to wipe all the glitter out of the sink, too, because the cat likes to sit in the sink. I knew you were going to be pissed. I'm sorry. And I don't want her looking glitter off of herself. I would imagine no. that's good for her intestines. Well, I probably ate a, a good amount, a safe amount of glitter today. Well, uh, go ahead, Jake. We're here now together, all of us, for a one-off episode for Pride Month, thanks to Callum Clow says hi i love your podcast <laughs> obviously i was wondering if you've ever considered doing a judy garland episode beyond playing dorothy in the wizard of oz she does have a prolific recording and concert career even becoming the first woman to win an album of the year grammy for her carnegie hall live album her 100th birthday is in june which is also pride month and that's cool because judy's a gay icon i love listening to your show while i'm working in my studio making projects like these thanks for all you do and for having this platform to get feedback from listeners. So you can look him up at Callum, C-A-L-U-M underscore Clow, C-L-O-W, on Instagram. He's got cool art. So here we are now actually doing Judy Garland because he wrote us that message. So thanks, brother. Um, I just realized she was born the same month that she died. Yeah, we were talking about this a couple weeks ago. I was like, she just literally just turned 100. Yeah. Would have. Would have. Interesting. Well, anyways, we are Death by Music Podcast. Um, I'm Jake, here with Cassie and Alex, and we are talking about Judy Garland. Hello. Well, it's not even her real name, but we'll get there. Uh, sources. Wikipedia. We've got BBC.com. IMDB.com. The NYTP.com. What? <laughs> no, New York Times. Or no, New oh. York Post and then Time Magazine. I got them mixed up. I can't read. Again, a New York Post one. By Chuck Arnold. By Chuck Arnold. There's Britannica.com. Biography.com. An article by Colin Bertram. Cheatsheet.com. Because hmm. we don't take the hard way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> University of California Press Digital Library. The Washington Post.com. An article called I'll Ruin You. Judy Garland on being groped and harassed by powerful Hollywood men by Ugh. Michael S. Rosenwald. HTTPS. No. No. <laughs> um, LighthouseTreatment.com. What is the black beauty pill? There's another Wikipedia article and another Wikipedia article. So lots of Wikipedia. In today's story, we are bridging the gap between actors and musicians and discussing a woman who was wildly successful on any kind of stage. Judy Garland did it all. She was best known for her role in The Wizard of Oz, but Judy went from vaudeville to musicals to TV specials to movies to album of the year. She began as a child star, which as we've learned throughout this show usually spells trouble, especially for young women and especially in the mid-20th century. 
Despite her many challenges, Judy was wildly successful, and queer people could relate to her story of being an outsider, being abused, and cast aside. Judy's 100th birthday would have been on June 10th of 2022, and in honor of her legacy and in celebration of Pride Month, we are going to tell her story today. So, we are talking about Frances Ethel Gum with two M's. Gummama. Better known as Judy Garland, she was born in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, on June 10th, 1922. You know, I got excited there for a second when you said Grand Rapids, but then you said Minnesota. Yeah, we don't like those words. <laughs> yeah, Jake's turned on by cities also. So. Yes. Yeah, I probably shouldn't stand up for a little bit. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. Uh, so <laughs> Judy, as we will refer to her from here on out, was the youngest of three sisters, born to Ethel Marion and Francis Gum. So I wonder how they came up with her real name. We're going to get into that. Don't worry. So her parents were in the vaudeville scene, and they ran a vaudeville theater in Grand Rapids. Popular in the late 1800s into the 1930s, vaudeville is basically a live-action variety show with many different acts, ranging from uh, singing, dancing acts, magic shows, juggling, etc. These shows all but disappeared after World War II with the rise of radio, and later on TV taking its place. They do still exist in a sense, though, if you think about the advent of the variety TV shows such as Ed Sullivan and Hee Haw back in the day, and uh, more modern shows like Key and Peele and SNL. Yeah, but also the Upright Citizens Brigade... Mad TV, all that. Mm-hmm. You're skipping the classics. They just put a- the Amanda oh. show. <laughs> Amanda, please. Uh, her family was certainly a musical one. Judy, of course, shared the same interests with her first performance happening at the age of two when she sang Jingle Bells at her parents' theater with her sisters, Mary Jane and Dorothy. For the next couple of years, the Gum sisters would perform at the theater with their mother on the piano. 1926 was not a very popular time to be gay. Surprise, surprise. So when rumors of Judy's father being homosexual started swirling around town, the fam relocated to Lancaster, California. Frank opened, he opened another theater there and their mother worked to get the girls into movies. So those weren't just rumors. If you plug Frank Gum into the Googler, the first link that pops up is a website called elisaroll.com. That is L-I-S-A-R-O-L-L-E.com uh, with an article titled uh, Queer Places that goes into quite a bit of detail about Frank's life. According to this article, Frank was gay and may have figured it out before he even got married. Uh, they suggest he may have tried using marriage as a way to cure himself of the gay. And of course, a hundred years later, most of the world knows that it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, Judy also almost wasn't born as her mother wanted to get an abortion, which was illegal at the time and highly dangerous. Frank went to a family friend, Marcus Rabinowitz, a.k.a. Mark Rabwin, who had been studying medicine to have it done, but Rabwin talked him out of it. Rabwin believed Ethel wanting to get that abortion stemmed from Frank's homosexuality and thinking that he was unfit to be a father. Uh, the sisters were enrolled in dance classes in 1928 and joined the Meglin Kitties dance troupe. This allowed them to make a film debut the next year in a short film called The Big Review. The next year, Garland made her first solo on-screen appearance in A Holiday in Storyland, a Vitaphone short. So, uh, talking pictures, a.k.a. talkies, were still brand new at this point. Vitaphone was a film sound system that utilized records with a turntable physically attached to a projector to sync the sound to the film. Seems really like a pain in the ass. Excessive, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The Gum Sisters' final on-screen performance was for an MGM Technicolor short in 1935 called La Fiesta de Santa Barbara. 
The group toured the vaudeville circuit during all of this, leading to a pivotal performance in Chicago at the Oriental Theater. George Jessel, another famous entertainer of the time, encouraged the sisters to change their name to something more appealing. The crowds in 1930 thought gum was just too goddamn funny. I know that comedy is subjective, but like what is funny about gum unless they didn't have any like teeth? Uh, I think it's really funny when I think of you putting 65 gumballs into <laughs> your cheeks. So I get it. It's fucking hilarious. Well, I wasn't alive then, so... You weren't alive when you put those no, gumballs in your cheeks? No, when gum was funny. <laughs> so there were several stories as to why the girls may have chosen Garland as their new name. The first being that one of the films playing at the Oriental Theater at the time had a character called Lily Garland. The second story is that they chose the name after Robert Garland, who was a drama critic. Judy Garland's own daughter, Lorna Luft, said that Judy chose the name after a quote that George Jessel said introducing the trio. He said, apparently, they looked prettier than a garland of flowers. Jessel also backed up this statement, saying, I think that I ought to tell the folks that it was I who named Judy Garland. Judy Garland? Not that it would have made any difference. You couldn't have hidden that great talent if you'd called her Tel Aviv Windsor Shell, you know? But her name, when I first met her, was Frances Gum. And it wasn't that kind of a name that's so sensitive a great actress like that should have. And so we called her Judy Garland, and I think she's a combination of Helen Hayes and Al Jolson, and maybe Jenny Lind and Sarah Bernhardt. Whoever, I don't like this guy. Whoever those people are. Al <laughs> <laughs> So, by 1934, they had become the Garland sisters, but they broke up the next year after one of the sisters moved to Reno to marry Lee Kahn of the Jimmy Davis Orchestra. You know, I don't blame her. I imagine working with your siblings in the entertainment industry must be terrible. Especially trios, because, like, look at the Jonas Brothers. That, right. like, public breakup was embarrassing for all of them. No uh, idea what you're talking about. I remember. They kicked, they kicked one of their brothers out of the band. Like, they showed up to a performance and didn't tell him that they were doing it. It was like Nick and... Steve? No! <laughs> what is your obsession with that name? Joe? Nick and Joe. And then they didn't tell Kevin they were doing it. And then it was like, why wasn't I invited? He was like, neat. Um, okay, well, it didn't hamper Judy's success, obviously. <laughs> she had been discovered in September of 1935 after Louis B. Mayer of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer sent a songwriter to go watch the sisters' vaudeville act. But I guess he only liked Judy as she went a few days later with her dad to audition for them. The studio immediately knew that they had to have her, so Judy was signed like right on the spot without following the normal screen test protocol or even having a role in mind. She was 13 at the time, so she was too young for adult roles, but older than your average child actor. Nowadays, Hollywood would have just given her a mom role. Yeah. 13. You're 13. You can parent a kid. Yeah, you're old as shit. Well, since we're talking about MGM, which Judy worked for for many years, uh, I think now would be a good time for a quick fun Uh. fact before things get too heavy. (laughs) Did you know? That Weird Al received a cease and desist letter from MGM for using footage from his own UHF movie during his live shows. According to Weird Al in a May 2000 Ask Al archives, he didn't own the rights to the movie at the time. Not sure if any of that's changed. What movie was it? His own movie? UHF. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, they told him he couldn't use his own movie during his live shows. All right. Well, I think that it's funny because they hired her immediately based on her talent, but then they went on to criticize her for her looks. This is straight from Wikipedia. Quote, her physical appearance was a dilemma for MGM. She was only four foot 11 at 13. Uh, And her cute 
girl next door looks didn't exemplify the most glamorous persona then required of leading female performers. She was self-conscious and anxious about her appearance. Yeah, no shit. She had all these adults telling her that she was an ugly duckling compared to Ava Gardner, Lana Turner, and Elizabeth Taylor, quote, real beauties in comparison, according to director Charles Walters. But I mean, are we surprised that women's bodies were still being criticized that early? I mean, it's probably, it was probably like worse things said then, but like there's more things put to print now. I I think that's an interesting point because and like probably not as many people were well first of all not as many people existed back then that's true and not as many people were able to reach these individuals as they were coming up so they're only hearing they don't obviously have like the internet or whatever where you gotta write them a letter to tell them that you think they're fat or whatever (laughs) so like they don't hear all that they just hear what these people are saying but people back then were so fucking harsh dude i remember my grandma she came to my when I was in high school, my grandma came to dance class with me. She was born in 1928. Like, I, I was in class, and, like, the do- the owner's daughters were in there with me. Yeah. And she's sitting out there with my mom, and she was like, God, these girls are fat pigs. And my mom was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Grandma, you can't, first of all, you can't fucking say that. Yeah. Second of all. They're children. They're literally children. Yeah. And third of all, they're the owner's daughters, so shut the fuck up. Oh, I'm trying like, to dance at the next competition, bitch. Yeah, but that's just how they were. They were so critical and like yeah. vocally critical. It was just normal. Yeah. So imagine how mean they were back then. Right. And she probably, I mean, my grandma probably got that shit from her elders, and that's why she felt like it was okay to say that. Yeah. Um, but now people aren't as vocal about it, but there are also a million billion more people well, who everyone are talking can post, shit about. Yeah, you. they can post their opinion at any point in time. Twitter, the it. worst of it. Yeah. yeah. So you just never know. Yeah, it's just fucked up. Um, so anyways, he called her the big money maker, but the ugly one, which he thought had a damaging effect on her emotionally for a long time. Obviously. <laughs> Louis B. Mayer referred to Judy as his little hunchback. Says the man with mostly neck looking like a thumb. I mean, the audacity for him to say that. <laughs> now I gotta look his ass up. Yeah. Louis B. Mayer. He looks like he could have run for president. It's as usually like, the ugly dudes who have yeah. so much to say about women. Um, he does look like one of the Roosevelts. Yeah, that's yeah. He looks like Franklin, but he also looks kind of like a turtle. But he also kind of looks. <laughs> he looks like Dana Carvey playing. <laughs> he looks like an uncircumcised penis. Okay, so a thumb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were right. Okay. Wow. And then there's a picture. Look at this. A picture of her. Right. Next to a picture of him where he looks like a little fucking scrote ball sack. His nose looks like Pinocchio. Okay. Let's stop. And she... (laughs) He's not going to hear this, but... He's probably dead. (laughs) He's probably dead for a hundred years. That man was old as fuck. He died in 1957. He was born in 1884. Wow. That old fuck. He was born in the Russian Empire. That's why he was such a cunt. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Continuing, um, I'm assuming it's my turn again. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, if you look up pictures from this era like we just did, 14-year-old Judy is dressed in basically children's clothes. They're like frilly dresses and costumes that played into her girl-next-door image. As if their constant vocal criticisms weren't bad enough, she was also made to wear caps on her teeth and a rubberized disc to reshape her nose. So I try to look these up because what the fuck? 
I, I was assuming that it's something you place inside the notch nostrils that would change the shape of your nose. Yeah, and I can't imagine that would be comfortable considering you would probably have to change the way you breathe, let alone talk and then sing. Yeah, that's a good point. So basically, if you have wider nostrils or a, mul- or a more bulbous nose like me and Judy, um, it pushes the front of your nose out so it looks more upturned and less wide. Uh, supremely fucked up. And luckily, when she was 21, a makeup artist for MGM told her that the modifications weren't necessary because Judy was already pretty. Which she was. What the fuck? Garland later appointed the makeup artist Dorothy Ponadell as her advisor for all of her work with MGM. A lot of Dorothy's in this story. A lot of, I think they only had like seven names to choose True, from back right. then. Um, Francis, Judy, Dorothy, Mary Jane. At age 13, Judy was working on the Shell Chateau Hour, where she got the horrible news that her dad was in the hospital with meningitis and he wasn't doing well. He died the following morning on November 17th, 1935. He was only 49 years old. So this took a huge toll on Judy, as of course losing a parent at 13 years old would. Yeah. Um, Things were so fucking creepy back then, but Judy caught the eye of studio executives when she sang, you made me love you. I didn't want to do it. So she was the ripe old age of 15, and she had to sing that song to the then 36-year-old Clark Gable at his birthday party. Gross. They loved it so much that she sang it again to a photo of Gable at the all-star show Broadway Melody of 1938, which actually took place in 1937. (laughs) Like, they made this teenage girl sing a love song to a photo of an old man. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, Jake. I know I, I, I have to be more conscious of calling people old. I, I, I don't think there's going to be any teenagers singing to photos of me anytime soon. So You never know. Judy had been appearing in various musicals, but MGM struck gold when they paired her on screen with Mickey Rooney and a string of backyard musicals. She became the literal girl next door to Rooney in the Hardy family movies. And I think that this must be where the classic like girl next door versus bombshell image came from because Judy was the brown-haired, soft-featured, sweet, innocent girl, but Mickey's love interest was Lana Turner, who was a blonde, classic Hollywood beauty with the high arches and sharp cheekbones. So she wasn't flat-footed. That's good to know, I suppose. Ah, Jake's a feet guy. No. <laughs> totally indifferent. Hmm. What, what the hell are high arches? Her feet. eyebrows. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, like, feet. Oh, my That's God. What I, I know her I was like, eyebrows well, are, like, What the hell so are you talking like, about? <laughs> that's like a thing like if you're she a girl if you're like a girl then your eyebrows are like, like wow so remember she was your eyebrows when you were listen it was the Cass- 2000s and everybody's eyebrows looked like that mine grew back i'm over it <laughs> so like that's a thing like being i think one of the defining features you have like super high arches in your eyebrows your eyebrows are literally shaped differently because when you're a girl they're fucking round and then when you are an adult they're like like they could cut fucking glass they're so fucking sharp yeah not mine. and your cheekbones and like your lips are all full and your hair's fucking sick so anyways i feel like this is where that iconic image came from of like the girl next door versus the bombshell but anyways not talking about feet talking about fucking My eyebrows bad. jake wouldn't know <laughs> all right brace yourselves because this shit is about to get even more fucked up judy mickey and other child stars were apparently prescribed amphetamines 
Um, and I'm guessing this is something akin to Adderall. Um, not because they had ADHD, but so they could stay awake and keep up with their filming schedules. Yeah, this is right before World War II started, too. It's crazy because... I think we mentioned it before. The Nazis were feeding meth to their mm-hmm. soldiers for their blitzkrieg. And even the uh, allies used it, though I'm not sure if it was to the same extent that the Germans did. Then, so not only were they giving them apparently, allegedly, amphetamines during the day so they could work, they were put down to sleep with barbiturates. So basically the kids are being drugged so that they can perform entertainment for the adults. Is this where Cosby caught the idea? Prab. Gross. Of course, the dif- uh, the dependence developed at such a young age, that was going to play a role in Judy's addictions to come. As she grew older, Judy recognized the way MGM used her as abuse. I mean, it sounds like abuse to me. Yeah, she's a fucking kid. Yeah. She felt as though her childhood was stolen from her. That, and they were trying to, like, they would make her look like a kid, and then they tried to make her look older than she was. Um, according to Judy's third husband, Sid Luft, in his memoir, Judy and I, My Life with Judy Garland, he wrote, unlike other actresses, she could not successfully camouflage extra weight, especially because she was dancing and singing and revealing costumes. At just four foot 11 inches, she could be underweight and still appear heavy out of or out of proportion because of the way that it would come up on screen. Because again, the camera has ten pounds. So yeah, and like when you're when you're short as fuck, you just look stumpy. Yeah, you know. Well, that I'm saying a that lot. as a short person. <laughs> I'm not saying that like short people. I'm not saying that to shit on them. I'm one of them. So Mickey. Rooney denied all of this stuff later, saying Judy Garland was never given any drugs by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Mr. Mayer didn't sanction anything for Judy. No one on that lot was responsible for Judy Garland's death. Unfortunately, Judy chose that path. So I don't know what's going on with Mickey, but obviously standards for men in Hollywood are much different than for women. Also, who hmm? was he to comment on what MGM was doing? How the hell would he know? Right, and this would have been I mean, years and years and he years after the, the fact right they were feeding him the same stuff so yeah well this was also he said they weren't to blame for judy's death which implies that this quote took place after judy died which was way further on down the yeah. line right and he's probably not going to say shit if he's still collecting money from them or whatever mm, i don't know maybe. um but it was going to be different for him than it would be for her anyways <laughs> So Judy's weight, like we said, was in the healthy range, but the studio forced her onto a constant diet. So this girl's going through puberty, which, if you didn't know, is when a woman's body prepares her to carry babies. And that includes weight gain. So to combat this, the studio would serve her soup and lettuce instead of the meals that she was actually ordering. The constant critique of her growing female body combined with the fame at such a young age led Judy to suffer from self-image issues for her entire life. And Mm -hmm. she grew immune to the awards, praise, and success. Judy required constant assurance from others that she was talented and pretty enough. Her first feature film was in 1936. She was 14, and it was a musical comedy about football coaches called Pigskin Parade. Sounds kind of gross. Because the studio was so worried about any extra weight that Judy could possibly put on, the heads of the company would, would refer to her as fat little pig with pigtails. Oh my God, she was never fat. Yeah, remember, these are grown ass men too. Like, that's disgusting. Telling that to her face, oh referring, God. like, not using her name, just calling her that. So the film would also appear to be where they start, first started working to modify and severely restrict diets that would continue throughout Judy's career. Her food intake was monitored where she could only consume chicken soup, black coffee, and cigarettes. And, oh, you know, the appetite suppressant pills were part of that as well. 
So at age 16, Garland landed the role of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, where she sang the iconic Over the Rainbow. MGM tried to snag Shirley Temple from 20th Century Fox for this role and then Deanna Durbin, who wasn't available at the time. Oz producers had wanted Judy from the beginning, and since the other two actresses couldn't do it, MGM gave in and cast Garland, who they, of course, attempted to fit with a blonde wig for the role. Uh, They did stick with the blue gingham dress to hide her now womanly figure and make her appear younger on film. What the fuck is Wizard of Oz, you ask? That fuck? It's a movie. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god thank you jacob you're welcome Woo! it's See a book later. first damn out. it you're hired you're forever on the <laughs> it's podcast it's a book <laughs> uh it was uh produced by mgm and released in 1939 it's an uh, adaptation of l frank baum's children's book the wonderful wizard of oz from 40 years earlier spoiler alert it's about a young girl, Dorothy, played by Judy Garland, which seems awfully convenient as we're talking about her today, <laughs> uh, who gets knocked out during a storm and has a wild dream while she's unconscious. Fortunately, she survives the whole ordeal and wakes up at the end of the movie. Widely recognized for its transition from black and white to full technicolor in all its glory, the film utilized some cutting-edge special effects, such as foam latex uh, masks for the lion and scarecrow, chocolate syrup for tin man's oil, and asbestos flakes to create what? the snow oh. when Dorothy and the lion pass out from an opium overdose in the poppy fields. Whoa, hold on. What? When those legit... They're just privately so, inhaling. Yeah, That's when, before when they knew it was not good for you? Yeah. If you were a loved one, that's yeah, go If you go watch that scene, they're just dumping asbestos on these guys. What the fuck, bro? And I was watching it, and the, uh, the guy that was playing the lion, he's like laying on his back, and he gets up, and his mouth is wide open. And oh, he's, no. he's like breathing my in, and he's like... <gasps> and I was like, oh, my God. Like, that guy Shit. must be dead. It, well, by now, yes, he is. <laughs> I don't know if he died oh of. Oh my uh, god! Of, Do you think uh, there was lawsuits later on? on but. And the over <laughs> the opium overdose in the poppy fields is that an exaggeration? Well, that's how I remember it. But <laughs> okay. the wicked witch uh, was trying to stop them. She's watching them in her what was it a cauldron or something? She was Crystal watching them. Crystal ball. I don't. Fucking yeah, know. I don't remember. She was watching them. She was trying to stop them uh, from getting to the Emerald City. So she put a poppy field in their way. So for whatever reason, that knocked out Dorothy and. Oh my god! I never and made that lion. connection. I have very vague memories. Well, of they they, this they didn't like movie. They weren't like shooting drugs or anything. But I don't I don't know what the but connection you know is between of. walking through a poppy field and passing out. I don't. I mean, something that's it. You made it. You made the connection. They OD'd. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. We're okay though. Let's not forget it was a musical, one of Alex's favorites, if I recall correctly. Uh, it produced such hits as Over the Rainbow. Uh, which has won many awards and ended up on a lot of top lists. Uh, also, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, If I Only Had a Brain, uh, We're Off to See the Wizard, and my personal fave, the indelibly creepy Lollipop Guild. We represent the lollipop. Now, you can actually find, <laughs> you, 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 uh, if you look that up on YouTube, you can find the version of that before they dubbed over it with the munchkin voices. Oh, no. And it's just as creepy. Okay, cool. On my way. <laughs> Uh, so, unfortunately, Judy was subject to all sorts of sexual harassment and abuse during the making of the movie. Sure. Very common theme throughout her life, uh, aside from the drugs and the ridiculous diet. People were making comments about her body. She was groped by studio exec uh, Mayer, who we mentioned before, and even the guys playing the munchkins, who apparently were drunk a lot of the time, were making passes at her and touching her. 
I have an excerpt here from Get Happy, The Life of Judy Garland by Gerald Clark. Between the ages of 16 and 20, Judy herself was to be approached for sex and approached again and again. Don't think they didn't all try, she said. Top on the list was Mayer himself. Whenever he complimented her on her voice, she sang from the heart, he said. Mayer would invariably place his hand on her left breast to show just where her heart was. Ew. I often thought I was lucky, observed Judy, that I didn't sing with another part of my anatomy. Uh, That scenario, a compliment followed by a grope, was repeated many times until, grown up at last, Judy put a stop to it. Mr. Mayer, don't you ever do that again. She finally had the courage to say, I just will not stand for it. That guy is fucking gross. Yeah, I read stories where he he would like proposition her for sex and then... She'd say no, and he'd start crying and be like, I'll ruin you or whatever. It's it's a lot of fucking stupid bullshit that came out of that guy. Uh, I'm not surprised because he looked like a toe. (laughs) (laughs) Some more fun facts from the Wizard of Oz movie. So obviously pay equality was not a thing in the 30s. Mm. And while Garland is the star of the film, she was making significantly less than her male counterparts in the movie. The Scarecrow and Tin Man made about $3,000 per week and the Cowardly Lion about $2,500. Dorothy's salary per week is closer to Toto's. What? No, I'm not joking. The Garland? Dog? Yes. Garland made about 500 oh per week. Oh, my God. And Toto, the dog, made 125. A dog? He doesn't even have a speaking role. I mean, he barks a few times, I'm sure, that right? That was probably dumb. He shook hands, in. He shook was... hands with who? Uh, the witch? Dorothy. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my And then my he bit the rich lady. God. Okay. That's yeah. fucking... So like, Garland Bruh. was also shooting babes in arms with Mickey Rooney at the same time. So once Oz was complete, she went on a promotional cross-country tour for babes. These two kids would perform five shows in one day at the Capitol Theater. Do child labor laws like not apply to child actors? Because like, what the fuck? I looked this up according to the Department of Labor website as of January 2022. So child labor provisions overall don't apply to children employed as actors or performers in motion pictures, theatrical, radio, or television productions. But with like any other great government rulings, it's decided by the state. So each state has specifications. Like California was really strict about how many hours and like they have to be in like school. I wonder what the, yeah, that's, I wonder what the logic That's a huge, is. you know, movie and TV place out in California. Right. So, yeah, so it like, really depended on yeah. where the they were. Fuck? Like you, you can't, um, sure work in a factory making shoes for somebody 40 hours a week, but, but you're you going to entertain act. the masses. Yeah, brother. We you're need way you. more important. Oh my God. That's why you get paid the big $500 a week. Yeah, so stupid. Look, so I hate it. The rumors, there were rumors swirling around that Judy wasn't allowed to eat solid food and that she was given a diet of what Jake said earlier, cig soup and coffee. I said she that. said that. Uh, that Cassie me. said it. <laughs> so sorry. Um what Cassie said. It's fine. Cigs, soup and coffee. The 3 C's. Where they soup. all mix together. Turning <laughs> That's a coup, Alex. <laughs> Turns out uh, Judy was actually anti-smoking at the time and that they would actually give her some some solid food in the form of lettuce, um, even though it's basically just crunchy water. Uh, the studio also wanted to keep her curves under control so that uh, they, to do that, they would keep her swimming, hiking and playing tennis. Uh, even more extremely, they used corsets and they strapped her boobs down to make her look thin and younger than she was. Milan. So when she was in Wizard of Oz, like she was like Ooh. fucking yeah. contorted. Yeah. You'd su- be, I'm surprised they actually made her boobs smaller. 
as men. No offense, but offense. <laughs> yeah, well, they wanted her to look like a nice, ripe young child. Oh, yeah. worse. There you go. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So now back to Wizard of Oz. It was obviously a huge success. It's one of the few 1930s films I would say people in 2022 have actually seen. But it took until the 40s for this film to turn a profit. The film was highly expensive. It cost them $4 million, which is nearly $60 million today, to produce. They also sold a bunch of kids' tickets for the movie, which were a lower price than adults. So it took a bit longer for them to make that profit back oh. at the 1939 academy awards judy won her only oscar for juvenile performance she was the fourth person to get the academy juvenile award and one of 12 12 um stars to get it before they just like got rid of the whole thing oh so after oz it also became hold on it became a thing to call a gay man a friend of dorothy i actually learned about this recently on a different level however um so the wizard of oz is where we start to see some connections between garland and the lgbtq plus community mm. there's a slang term friend of dorothy which is likely from garland's portrayal in the film itself it became a code phrase that gay men would use to identify each other now dorothy's journey from kansas to oz um quote mirrored many gay men's desires to escape the black and white limitations of a small town life for big colorful cities filled with quirky gender bending characters who would welcome them mm. Which I love a good metaphor. Yeah. That's very deep. Most people can relate that the best part of the film, Dorothy is immediately accepted to those who are different, including the cowardly lion who identifies himself through song as a sissy and exhibits stereotypically gay or effeminate mannerisms. The lion is also seen as coded as an example of Garland meeting and accepting a gay man without question. I, I don't think I would have ever picked up on that, but yeah. I honestly haven't seen the movie in yeah. 20 and plus when you watch it as a kid, years. you're not reading into it that hard. No, I but. never read into movies when I was like, there's, yeah, there's movies that I watched kids pick movies and they watch them over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was yours? These, these movies that I would watch when I was a kid, Ninja like Ninja Turtles, Turtles or Batman, <laughs> like I go back and watch them today and I'll, I'll pick something out. I've been watching these movies for decades and yeah. I will find something new. And it's like, I had no idea that was in there. Like, what the hell? Like, I get all the jokes now. It's like, it's fine. I didn't understand them when I was a kid, but I wasn't yeah. paying attention to that. I just like, there's there's turtles. Ninja Turtles, you know, they got animatronic heads on and then, you know, Batman's got his car and all that crap. That's what I was interested in. I mean, I loved Forrest Gump growing up and it took me until college to realize Jenny died from AIDS. Yeah. So like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's the main, yeah. well, that's kind of like one of the main plot points, but so, it's different. Uh, um here me so me and my sister uh like i said earlier in the episode my sister victoria who designed our websites in town this weekend and i was like oh shit it's pride fest this weekend and that's the day that we're recording the judy garland episode so we went out to norfolk for pride fest and then we went to a gay bar up the road and she was like looking for some kind of beer that she would like and she was like what's that one with the rainbow tag on it or whatever and i looked at it and it was called a friend of dorothy cute. and i was like bitch yeah. i know what that fucking means now yeah. it's so cute it's called a friend of dorothy yeah. in a 2001 documentary memories of oz john waters who is a gay what cult film director don't cut my sentence off oh, sorry. <laughs> um he spoke about seeing the wizard of oz as a child and says i was the only child in the audience that always wondered why dorothy ever wanted to go back to kansas why would she want to go back in this dreary black and white farm 
with an aunt who dressed badly and seemed mean to me when she could live with magic shoes, winged monkeys, and gay lions. Oh I God. never understood it. Uh, he's got a valid point. Yeah. But as a child, I was afraid of those monkeys. Oh my God, me too. And I hate also, monkeys. And also, that probably started my trauma with like the tornado sweeping me up. It wasn't and I had like Dave a fear Parker? of what? No, like that probably started. I was like, I could be picked up and dropped somewhere else that I and I'm like away from my family too I'm not yeah we're not here to unpack my drama uh, so did we mention <laughs> we're gonna do uh, an episode with the Dave Parker what? the weather guy as a special no guest? when no that was a joke oh <laughs> she's <laughs> like no when <laughs> like no you didn't mention it when is that happening am I allowed I to be know. in the room <laughs> you just seemed really nervous no, well nobody said anything to me I just figured you might have done that and I was like what is he gonna talk about the weather the weather he's, he's gonna talk about hurricanes no they're coming to get you as long as he doesn't bring one of those maps the hurricane preparedness maps that would show you the routes and then be like at the bottom it's is like that- what to prepare for in case of emergency it was like 10,000 pounds of batteries <laughs> Canned foods. <laughs> is that your real trigger? What? It's not Dave, hurricane it's map. It's not Dave Parker. It's, it's a the lot map. of things. It's <laughs> the map. I can't read that. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Soon, Judy would transition into adult roles. Her first being Little Nellie Kelly, uh, where she'd play the roles of both a mother and a daughter. See, I told you they make young women look much older to play moms in Hollywood. It was just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Mm. So this was a difficult one for her. Judy had to speak with an accent, perform her first adult on-screen kiss, and her only death scene. The goal of this role was for audiences to see Judy as a serious actress and a hot one. Uh, of the kiss, her co-star George Murphy said he felt like it was a hillbilly with a child bride. Oh my God. He was the hillbilly. Probably because he was twice her age at the time. Yes. Also, I don't know Thanks if that's clarifying. a compliment or not. Like what? He was the hillbilly. So I think he was just saying it felt icky. Okay, that, that, that's what I got out you of it. You recognize the problem. Yeah, he it. was like, I had to do this, and it was icky. So while Judy was being called an adult at 17 years of age, she was still a teenager. She had her first real relationship with this dude, Artie Shaw. He was a band leader. Uh, he was playing her. And then he married Lana Turner, which was her opposite in the Girl Next Door show that she did with Mickey Rooney way back in the day. So imagine having that role develop out on screen and then in real life, the blonde bombshell actually gets your man. We've all been there, honestly. So then uh, Judy starts seeing another musician, David Rose, which is like, girl, stop, because he's only 12 years older than her. He proposes to Judy on her 18th birthday. A 30-year-old proposing to an 18-year-old. At least he waited until she was an adult with quotes. Gross. Gross. Still gross. Getting Anthony vibes? Yes. Oh, no. So, David Rose <laughs> is known to me by his song, The Stripper. Jake, I feel like you know that song, too. All right. So, despite the fact that this man is clearly a keeper, uh, the studio intervenes. They say that it's because he's still married uh, to Martha Ray. <laughs> but what do they know? Martha was 24 at the time. She was cl- clearly aging out of David's dating pool anyway, so he had to go for the younger model, of course. Uh, Judy's clearly feeling a little bad. She's always being the second choice. So while she waited for David to divorce Martha, she ended up having an affair with a songwriter, which is okay, a little better. He's not a musician. Uh, his <laughs> name was Johnny Mercer. But was she having the affair because Johnny was already married? 
date? Or did they consider Judy to be having the affair because she was waiting for David to divorce his wife? There you go. That's a good point. There was no affair. It wasn't an affair. She it was wasn't. Fucking a a fling. True. Uh, so then on July 27th, 1941, she and David Rose were finally married and then they were divorced three years later in 1944. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So while she was married to Rose, Judy fell pregnant. And I think right we finally said it. this before. <laughs> and you were like, Val, you know, slipped on a dick. She just slipped on <laughs> that dick and then wound up pregnant. It happens. So her mother convinced. <laughs> Stop! Stop. <laughs> okay. So, anyways, she slipped and fell pregnant. Uh, her mother convinced her to have an abortion, which I don't imagine was very advanced technology in 1941. No, it was not. So abortion was still illegal in the 40s, but the repression of abortion during the 40s and the 50s took new forms. Prosecutors no longer focused their energy on the abortionists responsible for women's deaths, but worked to shut down the trusted and skilled abortionist. Many of them physicians who had got, you know, operated those clinics for years with little or no police interference. So sure, yeah, the woman have to go see unskilled doctors way safer which is what they're doing now literally doing it now <laughs> wow i wrote this two days ago and it already came true mm-hmm. yeah anyway judy's mother believed that the studio wouldn't approve of the pregnancy and while this may seem petty i'm of the opinion that her mother did end up saving judy her career and by keeping her free and clear from the old ass man that she was married and soon to be divorced to true Judy ended up having a second abortion in 1943 after having an affair with an actually hot non-musician dude who was only eight years older than her. His name was Tyrone Power. He can be seen in The Mark of Zorro, Marie Antoinette, The Black Swan, and more. He looks like Dave Franco. Mm. Uh, So Judy hits the screens again in 1942 opposite Gene Kelly for his first on-screen appearance. Soon Hollywood gave her the glamour treatment, lightening her hair up, styling her the way that other women of Hollywood were dressed. To me, she does look like a classic beauty, but she never felt confident enough or comfortable in the new skin after all of the harassment from her girl next door days. I do believe this is the point where she quit using the... Yeah. Oh, you're going to get into yeah, it. Yeah, it comes mind. into it. Yeah, uh, the next we, paragraph. We mentioned it previously, but we're going to get back into it. So, um, Judy was finally allowed the role of an attractive leading lady for Meet Me in St. Louis. And this is where they assigned Dorothy Ponadell, the makeup artist that we mentioned before. Uh, this is where she redefined Judy's look, where she extended and reshaped her eyebrows. Arches! Hi, arches. And uh, they modified okay. her hairline and her <laughs> lip line, and they removed those teeth caps and nose discs. I Did she keep them on this whole time? I would have thought they were gone already. Uh, no, yeah, she had them the whole time because oh. people told her she was ugly and hunchbacked and, you know. I, Same, I actually, but I don't have those things. I looked up the pictures between this movie and the one previous Mm-hmm. which I don't recall the name of, but I was like, I could sort of see a difference in her nose, but it was really hard to tell. I, I really don't. She did kind of, her nose did kind of have a different shape than her previous movie. And then it's this just one, like, it was a like a little bit, bit more different. upturned, but yeah. she's also like growing up too. So you're like going to look changes. different. Yeah. 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 So um, at this point, Vincente Minelli was directing St. Louis, initially having some conflict with Judy. Now they ended up working things out and then they decided to get married and have a baby. That seems a bit extreme, but okay. Liza Minnelli was born on March 12th, 1946. Now, Vincente was 43 at the time, and Judy was 24. 
Uh, they divorced by 1951. Um, I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I was today years old when I learned that Liza Minnelli was the daughter of Judy Garland. Bitch, same. Me and Jake all, we yeah. all three of us had, had no that. Idea. I was like, holy fucking tits. I, when no I, re- I didn't know that that was her kid. Like, I knew she was a big deal, but I just, I would have never put the two and two together. No, me neither. Mm. I know we're going to have some, like, listeners that are yelling at us. How are you so dumb? We're born in the 80s and 90s. Just keep screaming at your speakers or whatever you're listening to us on. (laughs) We can't hear (laughs) you. We're so stupid. Uh, We know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Had no idea. So while Judy was still with Minnelli and filming The Pirate in 1948, she had a nervous breakdown and was admitted to a sanatorium. That July, Judy had what was called her first suicide attempt, where she cut her wrists with a piece of broken glass. The cuts were minor, which makes me wonder if it was a suicide attempt or if she was just like doing regular old self-harm. Regardless, she had a two-week stint at the Austin Riggs Center in Massachusetts after that. The pirate was completed and released, but uh, it was her first film since Oz to not profit, mainly because of how expensive it was to shoot, especially considering delays for her psychiatric treatments, but also because the public just didn't want to see her in a serious role. Her best film at MGM ended up being Easter Parade with Fred Astaire in 1948, mm. but it was pretty downhill from there. Um, now, they were pretty pumped about the success of Easter Parade, so Judy started shooting another film with Astaire, but she was suspended by MGM. She was um, failing to report to work, so... I, yeah. Bro, same. <laughs> you gotta show up. Yeah, I gotta show up. Uh, so they replaced her with Ginger Rogers, and Fred and Ginger ended up going on to be... A, sweet little duo there they were like the little dancing couple um judy had been advised by her doctor to only work four to five days at a time with plenty of rest in between um because of her migraines and her use of barbiturate sleeping pills morphine pills and alcohol now after her suspension judy appeared in a few more films one with her daughter liza who was two and a half at the time little baby Little baby. So she had gained some strength and weight back uh, and was feeling pretty good for a while. But then she was cast in Annie Get Your Gun, where she had problems with the director. He was pissed off because he felt like Judy wasn't really trying. She had a bad attitude and she was just generally unenthusiastic about the role. Judy responded by showing up late or not showing up at all. She was depressed and she was trying electroconvulsive therapy at the time as well uh they ended up firing judy from the picture and she went in for an extended stay to like wean off of her meds at the peter bent brigham hospital that hospital stay helped her gain some more weight and after judy was cast in another film with gene kelly she felt like she needed to lose that so Mm. she went back onto the pills and then developed the same attitude towards punctuality Summer Stock would end up being Judy's last picture with MGM. It did well, but it still netted a loss because of Judy's production delays, um, just because she was in and out of treatment. Now, Mm -hmm. she did end up being cast for Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire, but the studio uh, resulted in terminating and replacing her. So this is from Wikipedia. Reputable biographies following her death stated that after this latest dismissal from MGM, Judy slightly grazed her neck with broken glass, requiring only a Band-Aid, but at the time, the public was informed that a despondent Garland had slashed her throat. 
Quote, all I could see ahead was more confusion, Garland said later of this suicide attempt. I wanted to black out the future as well as the past. I wanted to hurt myself and everyone who had hurt me. In September of 1950, after 15 years with the studio, Garland and MGM parted company. Yeah, so People Magazine had reported on the incident, and according to Luft, Garland's depression was so debilitating that she slashed her throat in the bathroom of their Beverly Hills home. Doctors rushed to the scene and saved Garland's life. Um, Luff said Judy had cut her throat with a razor blade. What demons inhabited her soul just when life seemed so rich and productive? It was a gig- it was a gigantic puzzlement that she would poison herself with pills so that the toxic reaction to whatever she swallowed would create an impulse for self-mutilation. Reputable sources, they're like, oh, she grazed her neck slightly, requiring only a Band-Aid. But his, her husband right. is like, she slashed she her throat. She cut her fucking throat. And there was blood all over the bathroom. Yeah, what I think is interesting is that her husband is like why would she do that she's rich and famous like what the fuck she's like and it it, it's crazy to me that her husband who's supposed to be the closest person to her still has no concept of what she must be going through and the shit she's experienced and like the traumatic the sexual abuse the verbal abuse and he's still her fucking husband dude at the time women weren't allowed to talk about how they felt yeah i mean it's just really sad it's really sad that her husband is right there like the person who's supposed to be supporting her and he's like dude she's rich and famous like why the fuck would she do that right and to people magazine whatsoever it's crazy to me that's probably why mickey rooney was saying like oh she did that to herself yeah studio didn't have any fuck that no fuck that that's so messed up yeah god i feel so i'm just imagining now like how alone she must have felt when you can't even talk to like your husband or your closest co-star like did she have any sort of support system anybody 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 there so fucking sad so in 1950 Judy appeared eight times on her friend Bing Crosby's show, Craft Music Hall. Bing knew that she was going through some shit, and he invited her on. So he seems to be, like, one of the few people who's like, dude, I get it. Yeah. Hal Cantor, the writer for Bing, said, She was standing in the wings of it, trembling with fear. She was almost hysterical. She said, I cannot go out there because they're all going to be looking to see if there are scars, and it's going to be terrible. Bing said, What's going on? And I told him what happened, and he walked out on stage and said... We've got a friend here. She's had a little trouble recently. You probably heard about it. Everything's fine now. She needs our love. She needs our support. She's here. Let's give it to her, okay? Here's Judy. And she came out and the place went crazy and she just blossomed. And that is what we need in the industry. And in general, is Uh, more supportive males. Yes. So her eight appearances on Bing's show put her back into the spotlight again and allowed her to tour sold-out European crowds for four months. This also kind of coincides with her breakup with Liza's dad. Uh, She was... She was pumped for the comeback, especially because she got to give double, double middle fingers to the Hollywood that assumed she was done. She was selling out shows and setting records with her theater performances and even got a Tony Award for reviving vaudeville. In June of 1952, Judy married her tour manager and producer, which Cassie's mentioned several times, Sidney Luft. Uh, The two of them had two children, Lorna Luft and Joey Luft. Since her vaudeville tours went so well, it was inevitable that Judy would make her Hollywood comeback 
1954. This time with A Star is Born, which was the first remake. I didn't see that one. But the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga one, I was crying in the theater. Lady Gaga. So she and Sydney produced it through their own company, uh, A Star is Born, I mean. And they used Warner Brothers for the rest. Unfortunately, Judy was feeling ill and that was leading to some production delays again. So when A Star is Born came out, it was critically acclaimed, but it failed to yield a profit. Judy was expected to win an Academy Award for her performance, but it went to Grace Kelly instead for The Country Girl. Groucho (laughs) Marx sent Judy a telegram calling it the biggest robbery since Brinks. Yeah, we're getting a little off track here, but it's a really interesting side story okay. uh, about what Groucho Marx was talking about. Dubbed the Great Brinks Robbery, and yes, that's Brinks, the security company with the big armored trucks that oh. I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It took place in January 1950 at a Brinks building in Boston. Nearly $2.8 million was stolen. That's about $31 million today. Uh, with very little evidence left behind. It was pulled off by an 11-member group, and now I couldn't find it directly listed, but I'm betting Ocean's Eleven took some inspiration from this heist. Mm -hmm. These guys had the whole place scoped out, uh, knew everyone's movements. They stole lock cylinders and had keys made for them and put the lock cylinders back. Uh, They even made practice runs in the building after staff went home. Absolutely nuts. They were all eventually caught about six years later, except for one who had died. Only well, he lived to tell the tale until he died. Yeah. Uh, only 58,000 of the original 2.8 million was recovered. Nice. Over the late 1950s, Judy went on to perform a highly rated uh, on highly rated TV specials and sold out theater shows at one point making $55,000 a week in Vegas. Fuck. Fuck. It beats that anybody's oh, salary for sure. Yeah. $500 a week versus $55,000. Fuck. But in 1959, she was hospitalized once more with acute hepatitis and had quarts of fluid drained from her body. They told her that she had five years to live left and that she would be an invalid and would never sing again. Now, strangely, Judy felt comfortable with that sentence. She said, the pressure was off me for the first time in my life. Psych! Because she made a recovery and she was back at the Palladium in a few months later deciding to move to England. In 1960, Judy began work on an autobiography recording her conversations with Fred F. Finkelhofer for a book that would never be finished. Super fun name, Fred Franklin Finkelhoff. Uh, was a film writer and producer who attended VMI in Lexington, oh. Virginia, which is only a few hours northwest of here uh, in the Appalachians. Sounds like John Jacob Jingleheimer's I know what I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> so Judy performed the greatest night in show business history at Carnegie Hall. On April 23rd, 1961, which went on to be a two LP set, Judy at Carnegie Hall, that stayed on the charts for 95 weeks. Wow. And of that time, spent 13 weeks at number one. This performance also won her four Grammys, the first female ever to win Album of the Year, which is one of the reasons why we covered her. Yeah, Barbara Streisand was the second female to take home the award just two years later in 1964, and Carole King was the third in 1972. In 1962, Judy was awarded her own TV special called The Judy Garland Show, featuring guests like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. It was a huge deal, and CBS ended up signing her on for a weekly series. Now, Judy had said in the 50s that she would never do such a thing, as in, like, a weekly TV special, but... She wasn't doing too hot financially in the 60s, and the deal was $24 million, which is about $160 million in today's money, so she had to say yes. Um, sure, I would have. 
Huh? I would have. On my way. <laughs> uh, so the reason why she was like struggling financially is because she failed to pay her taxes in 1951 and 52. And that combined with the fact that A Star is Born was a loss meant that she was several hundred thousand dollars in debt. So the show worked for a bit, but it was canceled after one season and 26 episodes in 1964. Judy was still married to Sidney Luft, but at this time she had an affair with Glenn Ford that lasted six months. Now that affair was detailed in Judy Garland's biography, Ford's kid's biography, and her husband Sidney's biography. It all started when Ford would just show up to Judy's TV show tapings and he would sit in the front row like a fanboy when she would sing. Garland actually fell for the guy. And Aww. it seems to actually have been one of the more stable relationships in her life. But according to Ford's son, he was a womanizer and he dipped out as soon as he found out that Judy wanted to get married to him. So it seemed as though Judy and Sydney were a decent couple because they'd been together for several years and had multiple children. But in 1963, Judy filed for divorce, citing mental cruelty and violence that he had hit her while drinking and tried to kidnap their children. It also wasn't the first time that she had tried to file against him. But it was the first time that she followed through with it. Daughter Lorna Luft explained about her parents during an interview. They loved each other and had a real bond, but their relationship could be volatile. Because my dad had a temper and would say no. Or wouldn't say no. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> she continued, and my mom had a temper and also wouldn't say no. So that got interesting. So they were both stubborn they as just hell. Butt hands. By nineteen sixty four, Judy returned to the stage with Liza, who was now eighteen. Judy booked an Australian tour in 1964, and the first two concerts of that were great, but the third saw Judy arrive an hour late and drunk. So she was booed off stage after 45 minutes. Now, all this time, she's still technically married to Luft, but then she kind of got married to her promoter, Mark Heron, overseas. Her divorce for Sydney was finalized on May 19th, 1965, and she was legally married to Heron on November 14th. Now, they separate. Sorry. Gall. <laughs> he's not a bird. He's a man. A man. I don't know which is worse. Um, they separated after five months after Judy testified that Heron beat her. Uh, he claims it was in self-defense. I, I really don't understand the appeal of getting married so many times. It's it just seems like a way. huge pain in the ass. And poor Judy can't catch a break. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it was just like the thing that you're supposed to do. Yeah, you don't have to get I mean, married that many if you're going to be with somebody, well, you got to get married, the, apparently. This was like the 50s and oh, 60s. Yeah, you had to be married. You couldn't be in a home with a man without that ring on. You can't fuck them unless you're married. So, like, that's probably why. This Only was, if they caught you. <laughs> that's true. Things are very different now. Like, this is such a long time ago. Yeah. So, probably to avoid the stigma, like, that's just what you do is you get fucking married. It just, it sucks. It sucks that that's how it was. During an interview at a San Francisco press conference, Garland was asked if she minded having such a large gay following, <laughs> to which she responded, I couldn't care less. I sing to people. Hell yeah. Judy, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Judy struggled to keep steady management after parting ways with Sydney and had a ton of money embezzled by her next managers. The IRS put liens on her home and her contracts as at that point she owed around $500,000. So basically any of her income went straight to the government. Out of desperation, she sold her home for way under market value and tried to get a couple of films. 
she was eventually let go from those. Her final shows were a set of 27 theater performances, which she earned more than $20,000 for, but federal tax agents seized most of the profits on closing night. The Advocate, a gay magazine, called Garland the Elvis of homosexuals, further a symbol of emotional liberation, a woman who struggled to live and love without restraint. She couldn't do it in her real life, of course, and neither could her fans. But she did it in her songs. And with them, she brought along anyone who similarly dared to care too much. In a 1967 review of her concert at New York City's Palace Theater, Time Magazine observed observed that a disproportionate part of her nightly crowds were gay. Quote, uh, not only did they mockingly note her popularity within the gay community, but they quoted Manhattan psychiatrists who surmised that she might be as admired of a, or she might be as admired as a role model of resilience. In early 1969, Judy's health was very poor. She made a few final performances in Europe, finalized her divorce from Heron, ah! and married her fifth husband, Mickey Deans, who was a nightclub manager. Mickey Deans is not my love. <laughs> It's too late in the day oh, for this. Yeah, we're getting a little loopy now. <laughs> we haven't recorded a full episode in so long, and we've learned we are no longer capable of such <laughs> things. We're capable. We're just funnier when it gets later. Um, is it funny or is it annoying? We should do you like- tell us. So she married her fifth husband, Mickey Danes, a nightclub manager, on March 15th. Judy would only be alive now for a few more months. On June 22nd of 1969, she was found in the bathroom of her house in London dead after an incautious self-overdosage, as reports said. Now, the overdose was believed to be totally accidental and not because she was suicidal. They found that her stomach lining was not inflamed and that she didn't have residue in her stomach, meaning that she had been using the barbiturates over a long period of time rather than taking a single lethal dose. Her prescription of 25 pills was found half empty by her nightstand and another bottle containing 100 more pills was nearby and unopened. Mm. Her first autopsy found that Judy, quite frankly, wouldn't have lived much longer without the overdose because at the time she was suffering from cirrhosis of the liver. Forensic pathologist Jason Payne James also believed that bulimia played a role in her death. 20,000 people lined up to pay respects in Manhattan at the Frank E. Campbell Funeral Chapel where her embalmed body was taken. Judy Garland was interred at a crypt in the Ferncliff Cemetery in New York, but at the request of her children was moved to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in L.A. Now, some people think that Judy's funeral triggered the Stonewall riots of 1969. So Stonewall is a famous New York gay bar, which uh, surprisingly was started by the mafia, not because they cared for the gay community, but to blackmail uh, wealthy closeted patrons and profit (sighs) from protection payoff and other typical mob money making schemes. Mm. On June 27th, 1969, when trans activist Sylvia Rivera heard about the funeral of Judy Garland, she became completely hysterical. She recalled to the historian Martin Duberman in his 1994 account of this uprising, Stonewall, it's it's the end of an era, she told him. The greatest singer, the greatest actress of my childhood is no more. Never again over the rainbow. Sobbing, she continued saying there was no one left to look up to. Revere had been planning to stay home and light some candles as a vigil to her idol when her friend Tammy Novak called and sounding more stoned than usual, as Rivera recalled, begged her to join Novak at Stonewall. At first, Rivera worried about whether that would be in good taste. Was it all right to dance with the martyred Judy Garland not cold in her grave? 
but she relented, popped a black beauty, and headed over. So a black beauty is a combination of uh, amphetamine and dextroamphetamine and is often used to treat ADHD. So that morning, Saturday, June 28th, NYPD raided the bar, but instead of the crowds dispersing, they fought back. 50 years later, experts say they didn't know exactly how things turned violent. My bets are obviously on the police. Mm. However, some think Novak was directly involved. One theory states when a policeman tried to arrest her and put her in the van, she fought back. One of the acts of resistance that set off a chain of similar reactions. So the, I read a few stories. A lot of them have that same thing, mm -hmm. the, the, that same scenario where the policeman was arresting them. They escaped. They arrested them again, put them in the right. van, and that whole thing mm -hmm. broke out. Yeah. So there seems to be a bit of confusion as to who exactly the person was that they were trying to arrest. Some accounts say it was uh, Stormy Delivery. I, I can't remember how to say the la that last name. However, did the timing of Judy's funeral have anything to do with the night Stonewall patrons fought back? Author Charles Kaiser in his book, The Game Metropolis, has one source that popularized this theory. Heightened emotions over Judy Garland may have contributed in a significant way to the outcry at Stonewall Inn hours later. Um, quote, no one will ever know for sure which was the most important reason for what happened next. The freshness in their minds of Judy Garland's funeral or the example of all previous rebellions of the 60s, the civil rights revolution, the sexual revolution, the psychedelic revolution, each of which had punctured gaping holes in crumbling traditions of passivity, puritanism, and bigotry, he wrote. <laughs> one of the several controversial aspects of the 2015 movie stonewall was the fact that it promoted the idea that garland's funeral led to the stonewall uprising even in 2017 the magnetic field song 69 judy garland starts off the first brick the drag king threw to draw blood from the boys in blue he said here lies judy garland on it and it flew through historic air but experts on LGBTQ plus history said that there isn't enough to prove that Judy Garland's funeral specifically fueled the Stonewall uprising. Mm -hmm. No eyewitness account of the riots written at the time by an identifiably gay person mentions Judy Garland, argues David Carter in Stonewall, the riots that sparked the gay revolution. The only account written in 1969 that suggests that Garland's death contributed to the riots is by a heterosexual who sarcastically proposes the idea to ridicule gay people and the riots. Hmm. Mark Siegel, a witness to that night and founder of the Philadelphia Gay News, wrote an op-ed in 2015 denouncing the emphasis on Garland, um, the Garland theory in the Stonewall movie, which he described as the most disturbing historical liberty in the film and downright insulting to us as a community. Some experts on the LGBTQ plus history, like Corb... Corbman worried that the focus too much on Garland, an entertainer, trivializes the main catalyst for the Stonewall uprising. Abuse, harassment, homophobia, and the growing recognition of gay and lesbian activism in an era of consciousness raising problems that still remain today. Moreover, the theory that centers the start of Stonewall around her death perpetuates the negative stereotypes that they stood up against in the middle of the night that on that fateful Saturday. In 2012, journalist Robert Leloux wrote in the New York Times that the LGBTQ plus community love of garland which he dubbed judaism i don't get it it's not to be confused with judaism it's oh. different so <laughs> it was becoming a little more than a cultural memory now judaism is set to grip a whole new generation with the release of judy that biopic starring oh renee God. zellwinger the buzz surrounding the film along with the 2018 remake of a star is born is kind of bringing garland's distinctly gay legacy back into focus 
Judy had given so much in her life. Uh, she was really generous. And this isn't something we touched on for the whole thing. So we want to make sure we talk about it at the end. She was really, really generous towards her family and social causes. So much so that combined with the mismanagement of her earnings by her own representatives, she was deeply in debt Ugh. at the time of her death. Mm-hmm. So... Her daughter, Liza Minnelli, worked with Frank Sinatra to try and pay off her debts, and many of her items were auctioned off by the Lufts, raising $250,000. She gave a lot, and it, it's really unfortunate because I think that she she was coming up at such a time that she didn't really get to benefit from the work that she was doing, but she kind of paved the way for other people, you know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. She seems to be like a very selfless person as yeah. well. She put up with a lot of fucking shit, as we learned in this story, a lot of really just abusive treatment from other people but still seems to kind of have that spark and want to give back and want to be good and want to love and want to perform after all the shit she went through it's just astounding i do hope that like especially with later in life when she was making the money she earned Mm -hmm. that she was able to enjoy those moments because like they said her childhood was so cut off and she was made to grow up too quickly and she wasn't able to enjoy any of that being on pills the whole time like i feel like during that time she really hit a stride and could probably just really enjoy that time especially being on stage with her daughter she was a child so you never get the chance to fully emotionally develop and become an adult um i i heard something for people who become famous the age that you become famous is the age that you stop maturing and that's why a lot of child stars are emotionally immature because Mm -hmm. they don't know what it's like to go through like normal human emotions and experiences of like getting your first job and having your first adult relationship because they hit fame at like 14 years old so that's where they their emotional maturity stopped and that's why they don't know how to regulate themselves makes sense is is that uh weren't you talking about that with britney spears yeah Why she's been having her mm-hmm. obvious you know problems and all that stuff that she's had yeah i mean and amanda Bynes, fucking any, lindsay lowen yeah any all disney star it was like this cycle of like oh they're gonna like spontaneously combust and it was like hillary duff was like the only one really to come out of that and similarly similarly like kind of live a normal mm-hmm. but still active life where she didn't seem like she went off the deep end and had you right know, but mental you can't illness. expect a child like first of all i mean jesus christ yeah, the fact yeah. that their kids that their their parents are throwing them into this as children is twins. just like yeah oh my god i can't imagine like forcing my child to work in an industry where there aren't any labor laws what the fuck i was about to divorce my parents for making me lifeguard (laughs) at age 15 (laughs) how fucking dare you i I can't take care myself (laughs) i I bet you her parents didn't even have any type of clue they were like hey we're performers this is what we do well they didn't even really want her and and that's just i mean they were poor yeah, they and so the money making. They're also like victims of the time too, where like they didn't have any source of income and if your kids can make it in the entertainment industry, yeah, there is that. if they can make it in Hollywood, so then much you can support the family and that's yeah. what she did. Yeah. She went there and she gave her money back to her family. Yeah, and they 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 obviously didn't have the type of information that we have now. I mean, we're yeah. we're looking at it hindsight, so. Yeah. Yeah. One of those California laws was that a uh, percentage of the money made by the child had to be like put away in a fund for them. Right. Because like there were trust. so many yeah. different parents stealing yep. directly from the kids. Yeah, that was what happened with Mary Kate and Ashley. Yeah. 
is like all of their money went into this trust that they could only access once they turned 21. So they just worked and worked and worked and worked until they were 21. And then they dipped They like noped out of the fucking planet and had their trust money and they stopped producing anything. But I think it's interesting too, because like their sister <laughs> is now in the spotlight and thriving and doing a lot. Elizabeth Olsen. Oh yeah. But she, well, she was allowed to be a kid. Yeah, she, she watched got to them do that. and she saw that and was like, I don't want to do that. But when she got older, she's like, I kind of want to do that, which is cool. Like, she got to make that choice. Yeah. They were forced into it at like, literally babies. months old. They were out of the babies. Oven. Yeah. Their parents Fresh. were like, my child is a star. Yeah. It's the next baby. Gerber baby. They've literally known nothing else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that has been our episode for Pride Month. Judy Garland. Um, I think we got a wrap this shit up it's time for bad this is the mm-hmm. longest episode we've ever recorded we'll see how long it makes it out yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was creepy i know um, i'm tired make sure that you guys oh somebody ordered a t-shirt from us today remind me to send it to him because i uh, make sent. sure you send that person a t-shirt thank you so much there all right go. i'll do it um if you want a t-shirt as well we have a little form on our websites that you can submit on you can also send us an email at death by at gmail.com and um make sure that you rest in peace later Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Artwork by Mike Johnson. Writing and production by Cassie Gardner, Alex Motler, and Jake.